The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. So for the last several weeks we've been together, uh, we have been talking about evidence. Evidence that would tell us that these books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are in fact reliable records of actual events that happened in history more than 2,000 years ago. And what makes these four books so unique is that the events that they record are the life and the teaching and the miracles of a poor Jewish carpenter by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And while any one of these books on their own could be dismissed um, as being the result of, of confusion or perhaps fabrication or, or maybe even myth and legend because, uh, because the events that they record are so, uh, so fantastic, um, the reason why these books have been taken so seriously is because there isn't just one. There, there are four. Matthew and John uh, both wrote their books because they were first-hand eyewitnesses. They were traveling with Jesus, and so they wrote and they tell us about what they saw Jesus do and what they actually heard Jesus say. Mark, on the other hand, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus, but instead he was actually a friend of Peter's. And so Mark tells us about what Peter saw. He tells us about what Peter heard, and he tells us about what Peter saw Jesus do. And then um, there's Luke, who in many ways uh, might be the most unique of the four, um, because Luke wasn't a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Luke wasn't even Jewish. Um, Luke, like many of us, uh, actually became a disciple and a follower of Jesus because of other followers of Jesus, and because Luke actually lived during the time period when all these events took place, he went out and he interviewed all of the eyewitnesses who wrote about what Luke heard about in Matthew, Mark, and John's books, and interviewed them all, figured out what was actually true, put it together in an orderly way, and then put together a book that he could hand off to his friend, Theophilus. So Theophilus could come to know Jesus really is the Son and the Son of God and the Savior of the world. What's undeniable is that we actually have these four books. What's undeniable is that all four of these books were written during the, the period in history, like we learned last week from our expert witness, Dr. Gary Habermas, when not only Jesus was alive, but these eyewitnesses were alive as well. What's undeniable is that we actually have more information about a poor Jewish carpenter than we do men like Alexander the Great or even the emperors of Rome who lived during the exact same period of history. What's undeniable is that these four men, as well as the other eyewitnesses that they spoke to, they all believed that Jesus, he really was the Son of God, that he died and that God raised him back to life again as proof that he really was exactly who he claimed to be. And so as followers of Jesus, our faith actually hinges on, on these four books. Because if what these four books say is true, if that really is true, then Jesus really is the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then what Jesus tells us about God, about the rest of this book, but even more important than that, what Jesus tells us about you and what he tells us about me, then all of that must also be true as well. If these four books really are reliable records then what we as followers believe, uh, followers of Jesus believe, is completely different than every other religion because our, what we believe is actually grounded in history. And that is so different that it actually takes Christianity out of the category of religion. And yet many times what we learn in school, and certainly what many of you learn in college, just like I, what I was taught in college, is that for some reason we can't trust these books, that these books are in fact 
unreliable. And, and we talked about the fact that the reason why so many uh, scholars and academics and, and people in the, the educational world, the reason they reject these books is because of a bias that exists in our world against the supernatural. And the bias kind of goes like this. It's, it goes, well, I don't believe in the supernatural, and because I don't believe in the supernatural, when I find the supernatural in these books, then I must therefore know that these books can't possibly be true. And while we said that that, that that opinion and that is certainly an emotional reason to reject these books, it's really not a very academic one. It's not a very scholarly one. And so that leaves scholars, many scholars and many academics, with really one, only one other plausible alternative, which is to claim that Matthew didn't write Matthew, and, and Mark, he didn't write Mark, and John, he didn't write John. What they believe is that there really was this person in history named Jesus who lived at some point, but then many years after he died, his followers began to collect these stories. And, and so many generations later, after all the eyewitnesses died out, somebody, we don't know who, so we'll just call him Bob, somebody named Bob, he decided to gather all these stories about Jesus that he could find, and he wrote them all down, and he added some very interesting tidbits to make the story seem a little bit more appealing to make the story seem a little bit more intriguing. And this didn't just happen one time, this happened three times. And one person labeled his as being the Gospel of Matthew, and another person labeled his as being the Gospel of Mark, and then still a third labeled his as being the Gospel of John. The problem, however, for the person or the people who holds that belief, just like we learned last week from Dr. Gary Habermas, is that there is just so much overwhelming historical evidence to prove and to support the fact that the, these books and the events that they record, especially the events around the resurrection, all of that information was clearly written and in circulation during not only the lifetime of the writers of these books, but also the people who witnessed those events as well, people who could have easily said, listen, that's not true. Because I was there, and, and that never happened. They could have easily said that. And these books are clearly written at a time that we're going to see today when, when the, the people in both Rome as well as in Jerusalem would have done everything that they possibly could to actually produce the body of Jesus. But because they couldn't do that, they had to resort to stories and cover-ups and fabrications, like we learned about a couple of weeks ago that Matthew actually tells us about in chapter 28 when he says this. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, again with the Romans, they gave the Roman soldiers a large sum of money telling them that you were to say his disciples came during the night and they stole him away while we were asleep. And yet even with the Roman government trying to eliminate it, even with the religious, Jewish religious leaders trying to eliminate it, somehow Christianity not only was born, but it grew and it spread. And the events that are actually recorded in these books are the very events that fueled the growth and the spread of Christianity all throughout the first century. And today, as we close up our series together, we're going to look at one final witness this morning. And in many ways, this final witness might be the most interesting of them all because this final witness also was not a disciple of Jesus. In fact, he was not, uh, again, he too was not even a, a Jewish person. And his words are not recorded anywhere in the Bible. And yet what we're going to hear from this, other witness, this final witness is that he documents and he, he corroborates exactly for us the events that we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially the resurrection. 
That these things didn't develop in a long period of time, but instead they happened very, very quickly. And this final piece of evidence, it actually comes from someone who was not even a Christian. Instead, he was a Roman historian that you met and you were introduced to three weeks ago. A man by the name of Tacitus. Now Tacitus, along with one other person named Livy, these two men are responsible for almost all of the information that we have about the Roman Empire during both the first and the second centuries. And in one of Tacitus's manuscripts, he tells us about an event that took place under the Roman Emperor Nero. Now Nero was Emperor of Rome from 54 to 68 AD. So this is about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection, after his crucifixion. And in one of Tacitus' manuscripts that are found, it's found in a book just like this that you at one point in your life studied, either in high school or college. In one part of Tacitus' manuscript, Tacitus tells us that Nero, the Roman emperor Nero, wanted to build for himself a brand new palace and a brand new capital city of Rome, but Nero had a problem. Nero's problem was the place he wanted to actually build these great new buildings on was already being occupied by the current city of Rome. And so Nero's solution to his problem was to burn Rome to the ground while everybody was still living inside of it. Now, this is the amazing part because you actually learned this somewhere along the way. Who is it that Nero blamed for the burning of Rome? Christians, that's right. He blamed the Christians. So think about this for a moment. That means that according to secular Roman history, according to Tacitus, that means that within just 25 years after Jesus' resurrection, there are enough Christians, not in Israel, right, but more than 2,000 miles away in Rome, there's enough Christians in Rome that Nero can actually blame the burning of Rome on Christians, Now, how in the world, we've got to ask the question, how in the world did Rome get the message of Christianity, and how did they get the message of Christianity in such a way that Roman citizens would actually abandon their belief in the Roman gods and embrace this idea that the one and only God sent his son Jesus to this earth, that he lived as a poor Jewish carpenter, that he was crucified with the help of Rome, and that God somehow raised him from the dead. How would they get that message in such a way that there wasn't just ten of them, there wasn't just a hundred of them, but there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, 2,000 miles away from Israel in Rome, all within just 25 years? What that points to is that the message of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus wasn't something that developed over a long period of time. Instead, it was something that happened very, very quickly. Right? And the strange thing is this, and again, you know this, the Romans hated the Jews, and the Jews hated the Romans. It's not like there was this big Jewish population living inside of Rome someplace. Rome never embraced Judaism as a religion. And yet, just as we're going to see today, the message of Christianity somehow gets to Rome more than 2,000 miles away, and Tacitus tells us that it happened while Nero was emperor. And there were so many Christians in Rome that he could actually blame the burning of Rome on this very distinct group of people known as Christians. Now, we're going to actually look at a portion of Tacitus's manuscript. This is his manuscript that has been translated from the Greek into the English, and Tacitus tells us this. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and he inflicted the most exquisite 
tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So again, according to Tacitus, according to secular Roman history, there was this man, Jesus, who really lived, and he suffered the most extreme penalty in the Roman Empire, which at that time was crucifixion. And he really died, and Pontius Pilate really was the guy who presided over his execution, just as the Gospels tell us. And then Tacitus goes on, and he says this. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, I want you to notice particularly how it is that Tacitus is referring to Christianity, what we think of as Christianity, right? He's calling it, what, a mischievous superstition. Very specific word that he uses, right? Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Not a mischievous teaching. Not a mischievous philosophy. But a mischievous superstition. Now, you've got to ask, okay, what exactly is a superstition? A superstition is a belief, right, that something very strange or something which is very odd, something maybe which is unexplainable, actually happened, right? People who are superstitious, they believe that on Friday the 13th, bad things are actually going to happen to them simply because it is Friday the 13th. And Tassus is recognizing He's recognizing that the thing that's holding this group of people together, this group known as Christians, is this not the teachings of Jesus, not the philosophy of Jesus, but it's this event, this thing that happened that was unexplainable, which is exactly what we've been talking about together throughout this series. It was Jesus' resurrection. And then look at this, one more thing. A most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, meaning, right, that it stopped, right? That's what he means, it stopped, that for a while it appeared as if the game was over. It appeared as if there was an end to this whole thing, but then it broke out again, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, here's why that matters so much, because that is exactly what it is that you and I read about in our Bibles, Take out your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 1, which if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you, uh, you can find it on page 1,690. Now, one of the things that we often do uh, when we read our Bibles is we kind of tend to skip the first couple of verses of a book and the last couple of verses because we just kind of jump over those things and we go right into other things. Um, But in the very, very first line of this book, the book of Acts, we learn a very important detail. It says this, In my former book, Theophilus. So right away, we learn that the book of Acts was written by Luke. It was written by the same guy who wrote the gospel. He addressed it to the very same person, Theophilus, and he writes it as a follow-up. He writes it as a part two to all the things that he has investigated and documented. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, 
that he had chosen. Verse 3. After his suffering, meaning his crucifixion, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, the very first thing he tells his disciples isn't go out and tell everybody you've seen me. No, instead it's the exact opposite. He says, wait, don't go anywhere. Don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to stay right here until the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, again, a quick question here for everybody. Do you know how much time there was between Jesus' resurrection and the time the Holy Spirit actually shows up? Do you know how much time actually passed during that? It was almost two months. In fact, Luke tells us in the very next chapter that it was precisely 50 days that goes by between Jesus' resurrection and the appearance of the Holy Spirit, what we celebrate, what we refer to as Pentecost. And so for almost two months, from Rome's perspective, it appeared as if everything was quiet. For almost two months, from Rome's perspective, it appeared that it really was game over. That the mischievous superstition had been checked. But then all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit arrives, right, these same men and women who were originally told to wait, now all of a sudden they're told to go. And they tell everyone that they see, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, we've seen him. Jesus is risen from the dead, we've seen him. Not two years later, two months later. Jesus is risen from the dead, we've seen him. And all of a sudden, the superstition that everyone back in Rome thought was checked because, you know, we finally killed its leader, we crucified him, we don't have to deal with that mess anymore in Judea. All of a sudden, this thing, it springs to life again. And when it does, it happens in two very different places, both Judea and in Rome. And again, here's why that little bit of information is so critically important to us that Tacitus gives us. See, if, if, if a couple of months after Jesus was crucified, if people, let's say pretty close to Israel, maybe in Egypt or, or maybe in Syria, right? if it was people who were a couple hundred miles away, from, from Judea and Israel, if those were the ones who said, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead, we've seen him, right? Then, then the truth is eliminating Christianity and getting rid of Christianity would have been easy. Because all they would need to do is, to, all the rulers in Judea, all the rulers in Rome, all they would need to do is to say to those people in, in, in Egypt or Syria, come here, I want you to see something. What's this? You know what this is? This is the tomb of Jesus right here. And, and what's inside See, that is Jesus' body. You've just been listening to a bunch of rumors. That whole story, it never happened. But see, Tacitus tells us that when it sprang out again, when it broke out again, it broke out exactly where it is the eyewitnesses say it broke out, in both Rome and Judea. And Tacitus confirms perfectly for us what it is that we read about in Scripture. Now today, as we kind of wrap all this up, I want, to tr- I want to try to, we've looked at so much evidence together over these last several weeks, and I want to try, uh, to the best of my ability, I want to try to put all of this in, in context 
for you today as we kind of close out this series together. And so I'm going to ask you to kind of use your imaginations with me for a minute. And I want you to imagine that tomorrow morning, you know, we get done here today, and I go to the airport, and I hop on a plane, and I fly to Israel. And once I land in Israel, I find a taxi, and I tell the taxi driver, listen, I want you to take me to the West Bank. The taxi driver would be like, you do not want to go to the West Bank, right? If you've never been there, you're clearly an American. You have no idea what's actually happening here. The West Bank is a war zone. Buildings are destroyed. There's soldiers everywhere. There's refugees everywhere. You do not want to go to the West Bank. And I say, yeah, I want to, I, I want to go to the West Bank. And so I get in a taxi. I drive to the West Bank. And once I get out of the West Bank, I start making my way to the city of Bethlehem. And this is a really hilly terrain. If you've never seen pictures of of this part of the Middle East, it's got a lot of rolling hills. And so as I'm walking up and down these little hills going into the city, there's these ancient city streets that are really narrow and they're just packed with people. And as you enter into the city of Bethlehem, what you see are all these markets, all these street markets. And people are buying and selling everything. They're shopping for their groceries. They're getting all their food that their family needs. And the place is just packed and crowded all the time. And imagine I walk into one of these city-crowded markets, and I walk up the hillside, and, and everyone's out there doing their business, and I say this to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, do you think if I were to do that in Bethlehem tomorrow, that the people listening to me are just all of a sudden going to stop what they're doing? Maybe tilt their head a little bit and say, that is exactly, that is exactly what my life has been missing. That's it. Do you think that that message would help the people in Bethlehem today? You want to help us, they would say to me? Get the Israelis out of here. Get the Palestinians out of here. You want to help? Get the soldiers out of here. You want to help? Give us food. You want to help? Give us money. You want to help? Give us medicine. Give us jobs. Take take care of our families. And then what if I went on and, and I said this? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Instead, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, then turn to them the other also. How well would that message be received in Bethlehem today? Nobody's going to stop and listen to that, right? I mean, don't, don't miss this. When Jesus showed up on that very same piece of property 2,000 years ago, that was his message. And 2,000 years ago, Bethlehem was almost identical to what it is today. There were two factions of of people there. 
who both hated each other. There were refugees everywhere. There were soldiers everywhere. And the streets were just filled with people trying to make it through the day. People who wanted to take care of their families and get something to eat. It was a mess. And Jesus shows up. And he looks at them. And he says, listen, I'm not going to solve your political problems. I'm not going to solve your financial problems. I'm not going to solve your family problems. I'm not going to take care of your sick kids, your sick grandparents. I'm not going to do any of that, but I tell you what I will do. I'm going to forgive your sins. So hang in there, because at least when you die, you can go to heaven. Now, take this the right way. When Jesus showed up, how relevant do you think that message was to the people who were living in Bethlehem? He didn't promise peace. He didn't promise wealth. He didn't promise jobs. He didn't promise food. All he promised them was, when you die, you can go to heaven because I'll forgive your sins. Why would anybody follow that? Which, historically speaking, right, it's undeniable. They did. By the thousands. Why, why would Romans follow that? Why would a Roman citizen leave what they believe and embrace that belief, which again, historically speaking, it's undeniable. They did by the thousands. And when the Roman Emperor Nero, when he tortured those first Roman Christians, they were told to deny their faith in Jesus, not abandon his teaching, not abandon, turn the other cheek. No, they were told to say, Nero is your king. And they said, no, I won't say that because Jesus is my king. And consequently, Nero put them to death. First by the dozen, and then by the hundred, and ultimately by the thousand. Not because of a teaching. Not, not just simply because of a philosophy. I mean, again, here's the point. Right? Christianity, Christianity would have never gotten past that first generation of disciples if there had not been evidence to actually substantiate what it is that Jesus said. I mean, why did people follow Jesus? And why did the number of followers dramatically grow immediately after he was crucified? Again, it's one thing to, to look at a person and say, turn the other cheek, right? It's something else altogether to say, rise up and walk. It's one thing to look at a group of people and say, blessed are the peacemakers. It's another thing to say to a group of lepers, get up, show yourself to the priest, and while you're on your way, your leprosy will be healed. It's one thing to look at somebody and say, let me tell you what God is like. It's another thing altogether to say, Lazarus, come out. See, the thing that kept the crowds following Jesus, 
It wasn't his teaching or his philosophy any more than if I were to go to Israel tomorrow and start reading his teaching in the streets. It was the miracles. It was the miracles that proved that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And again, if you're here this morning and and that's where your struggle is, if your struggle with this book is the miracles that are in it, I get it. I get it. I really do. But how in the world do you explain what actually happened without them? Because even secular Roman history, even Tacitus tells us that something amazing happened within just two months of Jesus' crucifixion. And how do you explain that if something supernatural did not occur? See, what we have as followers of Jesus is very, very different than what most people think of as religion. Because, see, religion, religion is all about this. Religion is all about a prophet who says, God told me, I wrote it down, now you need to do it. Religion is all about, God told me, I wrote it down, and now you need to do it. But, see, that's not what we have in, in, in these four books, is it? Jesus never wrote anything. Jesus never said, God told me this and now you need to do it. That's not what we have in these books. Our faith is grounded in history, in testimony, and in witnesses that have been substantiated over and over and over again. And because of that, we know that the Gospels are reliable records of actual events that happen, and we know that the Gospels are true. And even more important than that, we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He is your Savior and He is my Savior. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That is the message that has been preserved in this book. And I'll tell you what, I think it's fair. Because the truth is this, I know that's where some of you struggle. Because you wonder whether or not that message is fair. I think it's fair. And it is absolutely vital that every adult, every student, and every child actually hear the message that's contained within this book. See, that's our job. Our job isn't to go out and somehow change people's hearts, right? Our job isn't to go out and somehow make Christians. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's his job. That's not our job. We are not responsible for that. But what you and I are responsible for, we are ridiculously responsible for changing people's minds about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You and I are ridiculously responsible for sharing and passing on the message that we have received. You and I are ridiculously responsible for making disciples who actually go and make other disciples. You and I are ridiculously responsible to make sure we do everything in our power that every child, every student, and every adult would actually hear this message. And I do think it's fair. Because what could be more fair than this? Everybody is welcome. Everybody has been invited to belong. And everybody gets in the same way. 
Because everyone is invited to believe. And your price, it's already been paid by Jesus himself. Because everybody is invited to become who God wants them to be as they follow Jesus. What could be more fair than that? That is the message that God has preserved for us in this book. Everybody is welcome because God has made salvation available to everyone. And we all get in the same way through faith in Jesus and his resurrection. And your price, and your price, and your price, and my price, it's already been paid by Jesus himself when he died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And to prove that he did, God raised him from the dead. And what could be more fair than that? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much that you never ask us to just simply have faith in faith. Father, thank you for giving to us your son Jesus and giving to us the gift of the resurrection and giving to us the evidence the evidence, the overwhelming evidence that you, have given, that you have supplied us with, that we would know that his resurrection is true, that it's not just a story, for preserving the evidence in such a way that we would know that your word and your promise is for everyone. And Father, I ask for those of us who are here this morning who believe and who know that Jesus is your son, that he is their savior, our savior personally. Father, my prayer is that you would help us to never forget as a church the mission that you have called us to, to take the message of Jesus out, to go and make disciples who make disciples, that every single person that we would rub shoulders with in our lives, that they would all know Jesus is their savior. And Father, I pray for those people who maybe are here this morning who struggle with the message and who, who question the message. Father, please, give to them the faith that they need as well to know and to believe that Jesus, he really is their Savior too in spite of the questions that they may have. And Jesus, as we get ready to celebrate and to participate in what it is that you've done for each one of us are, are personally by receiving your body and your blood, the bread and the wine of communion. I ask that in these next few moments you, you hear us as we personally and silently confess our sin to you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is risen, and because he is risen, you are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.